Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we're going to be taking a close look at some of the events that are going to be shaping investment decisions and probably moving markets in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. This week, that means living with the higher cost of borrowing, trying to track the price of oil, taking the pulse of the high street, and this week's mystery sound and what it has to do with shopping. More about that later. I'm joined in the studio by Tom Knowles, economics correspondent of The Times, Emily Gosden, our energy editor, and Callum Jones, The Times markets reporter. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Now, we have finally, after nearly a decade, I have to say, put interest rates up, or rather the Bank of England has. Let's first hear how Mark Carney, the Bank of England governor, broke the news. As always, the committee will monitor closely the incoming evidence on the economic outlook, including the impact of today's increase in bank rate. To be clear, even after today's increase, monetary policy will provide significant support to jobs and activity. And the MPC continues to expect that any future increases in bank rate would be at a gradual pace and to a limited extent. Tom, first of all, do we believe him? Is there anything that could force his hand to put them up far faster and quicker than even he expects? Uh, Well, some economists expect him to put, well, to the the Monetary Policy Committee to start hiking rates every six months until they reach 2%. But so far, they've hinted that rates, rises will be a lot slower than that or go up to about 1% by 2020. So that's only two, possibly three more hikes uh, between now and 2020. And that's why actually we saw a slight disappointment in the markets. The pound dropped a little uh, because markets responded to this, seeing it as a very dovish response um, and think that, you know, this this gradual unwinding of the huge monetary stimulus that we've had for many years is, is, is going to be a very slow process as we go into this sort of Brexit uncertainty. Yeah, as you say, I think sterling fell pretty sharply after the, after the announcement uh, this, this well, at midday this afternoon. And that was primarily because I think the market is only pricing in about, I think, as you say, two or three rate rises over, over the next three years. And the bank is pretty firm on its indication that there will be no quick follow-up here and not some fast-moving escalator over the coming months and years. Do you think, um, Emily, if I could bring you in here, we've seen the beginning of normalisation from the Bank of England now, raising rates. We've had it from the Federal Reserve. And of course, that's very important, isn't it? That when the Federal Reserve raises rates, the dollar is usually popular. All commodities are priced in dollars. Do you see it having a significant effect? Or are there far more other factors that actually move energy markets rather than simply currencies? Um, I think it can have a big factor on certainly some of the energy stocks. I mean, if you look at the some of the UK listed um, EMP players and those operating in the North Sea, they did see a big impact of the fall in the pound post-Brexit because their sort of operating costs are in one currency and they're getting their, their revenues in another. So, you know, it can feed through in quite specific ways depending on, on that company's uh, on that company's setup. Tom, if I can go back to you, economics correspondent, 
It wasn't a surprise, but when they talk about gradual, one may not matter, but several more if they were forced to. If inflation remains, what, at the top end by 3%, that's a percentage point over their 2% target, isn't it? There are dangers that they may have to pick up the pace on there, and then they're not insignificant dangers, are they? I think there is a there is a chance that pressure will grow to, to hike rates faster. I mean, only in February, markets... Uh, were convinced from the messages that the Bank of England was setting out um, that rate rises wouldn't happen at all until 2018, 2019. Um, so these things can turn very quickly. Uh, but yeah, a few uh, extra rate hikes would make quite a difference to households. At the moment, you know, a, a, a rise from 0.25% to 0.5% is only a couple more pounds on your mortgage uh, each month. Uh, and savers might get a tiny bit more, but not much. I mean, granted saying that, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, Lloyds Bank, TSB and Yorkshire Building Society have all already announced changes to their saving loans only you know a couple of hours after the Bank of England decided they were going to hike rates. So um, these things do move pretty fast. I bet they weren't passing on the full quarter point, were they? <laughs> well, uh, so, <laughs> they some have. I mean, uh, but we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll see. Um, so it's it, it, yeah, it can change very quickly. Um, but at the moment, Carney and others are insistent that it's going to be a very slow process. At the other end of the spectrum, there's an interesting point which has been floated by a few analysts today. Obviously, the, the the talk is among how quickly rates will rise over the coming years. But another point's made, which is if the economy does run out of steam over the next few years, in the big picture, interest rates are still very, very low. They're still currently, after today, at 0.5%. So actually, the Bank of England's arm is somewhat twisted unless rates have gone up considerably over the next few years. Yeah, um, and, and it's interesting. I was talking to other colleagues and we've all experienced different uh, experiences of interest rate rises. The last time interest rates were hiked was in July 2007 when I was at university, whereas I was talking to my uh, colleague Robert Lee, our industrial editor, and he said on his stag do, interest rates went up by 16% because it was on Black Wednesday they had it. So there you go. I think that's the thing this time with with which makes any potential significant increase in interest rates to come just the stakes are so much higher because there's a whole generation of of people who have you know just got on the property ladder and have have never never really known or lived through a period of high interest rate rises. Yeah, and obviously there's there's been increased worries about the amount of uh, consumers who have been by the terms of a word binging on debt you know really racking up on on credit cards and overdrafts and and so on and and the bank's obviously concerned about this and they're hoping that perhaps these gradual uh, rate rises will encourage people to perhaps save a bit more and borrow a bit less the bank's really trying to to hammer home that that word gradual though isn't it at the end of the day it will be quite concerned by the by the sheer number of reports this morning which have suggested that those who are at the bottom end of the property ladder will be hammered by this over over the next few years when actually it's really trying to get across that this is a gradual rise and this isn't uh, some sudden surge in rates that we'll see over the next couple of months. Philip said uh, previously in the last podcast that A, Mr Carney had to vote for a rate increase, otherwise his credibility with the market is shot. Has he restored his credibility or do you think that the market is still a little unsure as to the messages that they can really latch on to from him? And that's that's a bit of a failing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, as I think Phil Odrick has said before, he's been dubbed the unreliable boyfriend or the flip-flopper. And it wasn't so much restoring credibility as more 
if Mark Carney hadn't raised rates this time or the monetary policy committee hadn't, then their uh, credibility would be completely trashed because markets were so positive that it was going to happen because of the hints that have been given. They have just been totally shocked. So uh, it, it, they're, they're still a bit untrustworthy and sort of go their own way because they feel that just these hints often turn into nothing. It's also worth pointing out, I suppose, there are two groups of people who are very, very closely watching what he's doing. And on one level, you've got the city who are calling for him to do one thing on another level, you've got Westminster, who's who, and there are some people in, in in Westminster who are calling for him to do very very different things. And he didn't shy away from warning over the from again bringing up the impact of Brexit in his comments after today's announcement. And he will still be under quite a lot of pressure from certain critics in Westminster. Obviously, it's it's worth pointing out that those are that those are the Brexiteers. Those are the people who were very prominent Leave campaigners in, in 2016. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, obviously the time is now ticking on the rest of his tenure, it'll be interesting to see whether he'll continue to appease those two groups of people, I guess, over the coming over the coming few months. It's a very good point that Callum raises there about Westminster and they say, well, the governor's interfering politically. Couldn't you turn it around the other way and say they're interfering with an independent central bank who would be failing in their duty if they didn't take into account what might happen with Brexit. That's their job, surely, to try and make it as stable as possible, this whole awful transition period. Absolutely, and I think the sensible politicians agree with that. You know, there's certain politicians who, naming no names, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, who, who feel that it's their duty to... That. I'm glad you did that, actually, because <laughs> I was about to name him too, uh, and shame him. Who feel it's their duty to sort of, you know, criticise Carney whenever he's uh, objective about Brexit. Saying all that, some people do argue that perhaps Mark Carney goes more out of his way than a Bank of England governor needs to about saying all the dangers associated with Brexit. And some would argue that, you know, he was so wrapped up in this that he gave too much monetary stimulus too quickly. There was perhaps no need to cut uh, interest rates from 0.5 to 0.25% after Brexit. But that's a debate to be had with other people. <laughs> well, that's why they probably call hindsight the exact science, isn't it? Well, we'll leave that then. And after all, economics is the dismal science. So there we are. We'll move on now to oil. Uh, Emily, if I could bring you in here as the energy editor. We've had updates from Royal Dutch Shell and BP. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, how are they looking? And, and obviously, bearing in mind that we are looking ahead, aren't we, towards the end of November when... OPEC are going to hold their regular policy meeting in Vienna. So just set the scene for us based on those results, really, and looking forward. Sure. So it's been a pretty good week for, for Shell and for BP both. Um, both coming out with quite strong results for the third quarter, both significantly beating um, market expectations. Uh, so we have BP reporting on Tuesday. They were something like 300 million ahead of expectations and um, underlying profits pretty much doubled on last year. And the big thing which investors liked about BP's results was that on the back of their kind of newfound confidence in uh, in the, the strength of their balance sheet, they said that they were going to resume a share buyback scheme. So over the last few years, to help them basically cope with this squeeze on their finances, uh, they've been offering the script dividend, which is quite popular with investors where you, you about a fifth of their shareholders receive the dividend in shares rather than in cash. But obviously that dilutes the, the shareholding over everyone else. So what they haven't been doing until now is buying back shares to, to offset that impact. And they're going to resume that in the fourth quarter. Investors pleased by that and, and shares were up pretty healthily off the back of that. Shell today similarly had pretty good ahead of expectations results. And 
Actually, the share price reaction was a bit muted this morning, but they're, they're kind of ticking up now off the back of an investor presentation this afternoon. They were up on last year and they were also fairly healthily ahead of expectations, seemingly due to their downstream division. So downstream is is the jargon for refining and, and marketing, as you well know. And over the last few years, as, as prices tanked, really the refining and marketing businesses have been what's been keeping these big oil companies going. And it's interesting, even now, with oil prices back a little bit at healthier levels, uh, it's, it's the downstream refining and marketing that's still generating two thirds of, of their profits for both of these companies. But looking ahead, uh, yes, as you say, we've got OPEC meeting at the end of the month in Vienna, be a year on from when they thrashed out that deal to curb production. And I mean, so far, they have been holding to it relatively well. And I think the expectation now is that they will probably be looking to extend that potentially for up to nine months. But that is the key question is is how long they extend it for, I think. Uh, there is always a question of whether they really can thrash out a deal ultimately. We've seen very positive language from Saudi Arabia about the need for a deal. But Russia, the other biggest producer in the world, still saying, well, we're not quite sure if it's necessarily going to be agreed in November. So I'm sure it will still go to the wire. Worth pointing out as well that uh, both both Shell and uh, BP on the market had a difficult start to the year. Now both have turned positive since the start of the year. And that's primarily for two reasons. One, of course, the rising oil price. And two, because they've released announced, uh, they've released results like they have this week, which have actually reassured investors who were quite concerned and also investors who potentially a year ago didn't necessarily buy what OPEC was promising with the, with these production curbs. Now, after maybe six months or so of, of concern over whether they would actually materialise, there's there's a little bit of reassure, reassurance going on there. Plenty more in the city now actually believe that they this is happening and it's happening, having a real impact. And there's no doubt that the the oil stocks do fluctuate with the short-term fluctuations in the oil price. And, and you know, every... Every few dollars on the oil price feeds through to, to billions of dollars of, of profits for these companies. So the oil price in the short term does matter. But what Callum was saying about the change in sentiment in the year, that isn't just about the fact that oil prices are, are, seem to be back in a slightly steadier range. Because actually, in terms of oil prices, what's happened over the last few months is, is people really coming to the conclusion that prices are going to stay in that sort of range. So people like Bob Dudley, who maybe last year was still forecasting that in the longer term or medium term, we'd see them picking back up again, is now talking about sort of lower forever mindsets. I think that's Shell's phrase, but they're both talking about sort of staying in the 50 to 60 range for this year. So renewed confidence isn't just about short-term oil prices. What it's also about is this confidence that the companies have managed to adjust the way they do business to cope with that longer outlook. So at the start of the year, the thing that really hit BP was it came out and said it thought it needed $60 oil this year to to balance its books and to, to break even. And, you know, oil was about $50 at that point and everyone went, well, that's, that doesn't sound good. And then over the course of this year, they have been pushing that number down and down. And now they're saying that at $49 oil, they can pay their entire dividend and cover all their spending and, and break even. And it's that confidence that they can afford to go about their business, even at lower prices, that's really kind of supported stocks this week, I think. And Tom, just a quick economics thought here. Obviously, the price of fuel, especially as you come into winter, heating fuel, it's all passed on in costs. It shouldn't have too much of an inflationary effect, or should it? Within the price band that Emily and, and, and Callum have just been talking about, 50 to 60 is a bit Goldilocks. It's not too high, it's not too low. 
Well, I don't know. I, I readers often write in telling me off if I say the 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 right rapid rise in inflation has just been caused by the drop in the pound uh, since the Brexit vote. It is also to do with things like energy prices rising and uh, even commodity prices. Uh, um, as some people may be aware, there's things like, there's a butter shortage uh, which is affecting food retailers, for example, and is is causing France to run out of croissants because they don't have enough butter. So. It's not all about petrol. Serious crisis. Yeah, that. I mean, that's, uh, that, no, a, that's yes. a proper commodity crisis, if you ask me. I think that needs a whole podcast all on its own. While we eat the fair. Well, we'll we'll move on there. Thanks for that. Sit tight. Uh, and oh, just remember this: our mystery sound. the current Sainsbury Zone, in case you didn't know what's for dinner. And the reason it's just music, it's all based on emojis. I don't know why people emoji about their dinners, but they do apparently. Um, Callum, we're going to be hearing uh, from a host of big-name retailers in the coming days. We've got Sainsbury's, Marks and Spencer's, Burberry. Just set the scene for us. Uh, we've been talking about, well, consumer spending. I mean, start there. Yeah, so we heard from Next one uh, early, earlier this week. So that's probably the best place to, to start. I was once told that a surefire way to spot a company under pressure was to go through the trading statement and find any any sort of comparison or any link that they've made with trading and the weather. And lo and behold, it said that sales performance have remained extremely volatile and is highly dependent on, yes, you guessed it, the seasonality of the weather. And this immediately sent shares in Next, which have not had a very good year at all, uh, down again. It sent shares in M&S and Associated British Foods, that's the owner of Primark, which reports next week, uh, down as well. And it, what it does is it kind of reassures this overall city nervousness at the moment about <coughs> bricks and mortar retailers. There are analysts uh, and investors, to be fair as well, who have again and again questioned the business model, which has been there for decades now, as we know, uh, and has been a surefire way uh, of generating strong profits. But with the rise and rise of online retailers and the rise and rise of online shopping habits as well, uh, more and more people are beginning to question whether companies like this can continue to produce bumper profits. Tom, you mentioned earlier about the debt we're all in. I mean, presumably a lot of the sales that we're talking about, these big name retailers, those companies that, that Callum mentioned, are relying, particularly for the big ticket items, on people borrowing to buy. Well, yeah, that's that's the sort of paradox we're in and um, problem. The, the, the Bank of England is getting slightly worried that uh, consumers are borrowing too much. You know, uh, unsecured borrowing is rising at a sort of decade high each month. Um but at the same time, it, it fuels the economy. Consumer spending is is a powerhouse, and it, it helps uh, these big retailers. Um, and what Callum is saying is interesting. I, you know, I I think slowly over time we're going to see retailers focus on having a few major flagship stores in a couple of shopping centres across Britain, rather than having you know a hundred. They only need maybe fifteen. Uh, and they're just going to focus more and more of their investment and money in these big warehouses sort of outside of town where they can do all this online shopping, which is just going to become more and more of the future. So what becomes of the high street? Well, this is a good question, um, and, and, and no one quite knows. Um, Aviva had a very negative outlook on on shops in general. I mean, they basically said the conventional shop is going to die and they are sort of changing their whole portfolio around that because they're seeing that this this is there is more to come, basically. It's interesting uh, that obviously you, are, you ask Emily what, what becomes the high street. You always hear of these anecdotal stories at the moment of, for example, 
Debenhams trialling out gyms in stores. I think the old um, flagship British home stores uh, outlet on Oxford Street is now being uh, used or will be is being redeveloped into a sort of crazy golf uh, site as well. And so it's almost like it goes back to what people are talking about, about the experience economy and the fact that that might actually play a much bigger role on the high street than we've seen up until now. Absolutely. Oh, sorry. And and in uh, shopping centres, that's especially the case. Um, you know, the, the likes of British Land and Hammerson, which own lots of shopping centres, are saying that they are completely revamping the way they design shopping centres to have a lot more of this sort of ledger activity and food and beverage. So it becomes this thing where they try and incite you and you make it a whole day out where you can buy a few things, but also go to the cinema and get something to eat, maybe go a bit bowling or crazy golf. Um, so it's, it's trying to make it a, a day out activity rather than just do the normal shop. But they're all out of town, aren't they? It's not really doing much for the high street. And Mary Porter's attempts to kickstart the high street, there's one near us in Tiverton, it didn't really ever take off, I'm afraid. Yeah, I always wonder what happened to those Mary Portis. Uh, they did. They stuff. just disappeared. They just disappeared off the high street, presumably because yeah. the whole. I mean, the boroughs were over there, up and down the country, trying to kickstart their local. I said, but very difficult, isn't it? I mean, look, let's have a strong point at the end. I mean, do you spend more of your time now shopping than you ever did before online, or is it just you mix and match? A bit no, like banking. I, I'm. I mix. I actually hardly ever use Amazon. I quite like going to the shops, and also, I think although it's a gradual process. Uh, if you go down Oxford Street on Christmas Eve, there is a lot, mostly men, granted, but a lot of worried shoppers and it's packed. It's not like, you know, the streets are to yourself. So it, it, this is going to take a while before the high street is quite dead. Emily? Uh, I do do both. I, I am a big fan of the online shopping. I like the fact that I can put in my grocery order while I'm on the train on the way to work if I want to do that. Um, equally... Having spent a lot of this week battling with with the delivery firm, which failed to deliver something on Saturday, I think, you know, there are still big logistical questions about the move to online shopping. And actually, it even feeds through to energy, believe it or not, bringing everything back to my pet topic. But actually, it, it means there's a, uh, a big increase in delivery vehicles on the road and you've got to power them all somehow and you've got to make sure they can get places on time without being clogged up behind everyone else's delivery vehicles. You're entirely right on the logistics, Emily, um, of online of, of online shopping. It's one thing setting up a website, but obviously that's one thing that any online company needs to get right. And it seems that some are still having trouble. Tom, your point on Oxford Street on Christmas Eve has just made me feel quite ill. But um, uh, <laughs> I'll try to move past that thought. Um, for, for me, I have to say, I still try and juggle the two as best I can. Um, and it's just a case of it's probably different, different items on different things. Uh, as for the future of the high street and going back to that, I was still struck only a, only a week or so ago when Whitbread were suggesting that they're, they're still we still haven't reached peak coffee shops across the country at the moment. It feels like, particularly in London, but we're in any city centre at the moment, you can't really turn a corner without encountering a Costa or Starbucks or two or three. Very much seems like there's more to come. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you all very much indeed for that. And don't forget to follow those financial updates. A scheduled ABF, Associated British Foods, the owner of Primark, Marks and Spencer's, Sainsbury's, Burberry's. We'll have them all and the other news and analysis online on your phone, tablets and in the paper. If you are a subscriber, then sign up to our morning and lunchtime business bulletins. And if you aren't, then you can go to thetimes.co.uk. If you'd like to hear us weekly, subscribe through iTunes. My thanks to Tom Knowles, Emily Gosden and Callum Jones. They're on Twitter, so please do follow them. And thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. <laughs>